Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. This morning we come upon the beginning of the narrative of the first recorded martyrdom in the Christian church, that of Stephen, the man who we just met earlier in chapter 6 as one of the seven deacons appointed in the early church. This morning we'll be looking at uh, verses 7 through 15 of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Let us pray. Our Father, we do again ask humbly that you would feed your sheep, that you would nourish us from your word, that by your Holy Spirit we would understand what he wishes and wished to preserve for our instruction and for our edification. In this narrative of Stephen, in this disputation between Stephen and the Libertines, we pray that we might discern wisdom and that we might also have a spirit as Stephen had, full of power and of faith. We ask that you would do this for our, for our good and our building up and for your glory and the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ, in which name we pray. Amen. Amen. We think of the book of Acts generally as a, um, a history of the early church. And like many histories in the, in the Bible... We sometimes wonder what we're supposed to do with it. Uh, we were talking at home about the, the difficulty, and, and this was something that was discussed uh, in homiletics when I was in seminary, the difficulty of preaching through historical narrative, the difficulty of, of steering clear, of, of just ignoring it as something that happened in the past, or on one hand, or on the other hand, uh, acting as though everything that happened in the past should continually happen in every generation. You know, so there's a... There's kind of a, a, a rock and a hard place there when you look at narrative. You know that the scripture has been recorded for us, for our instruction, for our building up, for our growth in faith, and, and for our practice. And so we ignore none of it. But that doesn't mean all of it and each part of it is uh, equally easy to, to preach from and to, uh, to assimilate into our lives. This particular passage, again, Luke reminds us of the growth of the early church. We might say that, that this book is really the original church growth manual. 
And, and in that light, I'd like to, to, to ask us and ourselves as we have become aware and familiar with modern church growth methods and church growth books, how well have modern authors followed the divine blueprint? How well has the modern church looked upon the book of Acts, for example, as a pattern for church growth? I don't know how many of you have read, it's now pretty much out of date, as so many things are so quickly, but the purpose-driven church, very popular back in the 90s and the 2000s, the purpose-driven church, which was essentially the the, the Bible for the seeker-sensitive movement that held that churches should be organized and designed to reach unbelievers, that the music of the church and the message of the church should be geared to those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ and should be such as would attract people from the world into the church. There are, of course, uh, from this teaching, generational and socioeconomic target groups that individual churches should not just um, to have a, a blanket evangelistic thrust, but rather should decide what will their target group be, and then they should gear and build their church for that group of unbelievers in the world. This idea of seeker-sensitive churches has somewhat diminished over the past decade. And today we have, uh, I think the most popular trend is the satellite church, where you have basically one home campus, one preaching minister, and and the message is then beamed to various satellite churches within the same community. That's kind of the popular thing. Is this what we read in Acts? Well, obviously not. They didn't have internet. They didn't have Facebook. And I'm not saying anything against those technologies. But the focus on on the church being organized and the ministry of the church being set up around unbelievers. Is that how the church was built? I'd like to bring your attention to the way Luke is inspired to record church growth. I think his terminology is intentional. And I think his terminology is very different from what we hear in the modern church today. For example, he doesn't talk about converts. He doesn't even talk about believers. He calls them disciples. He says, we read in verse 7, the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Well, in the modern church, especially for the past generation or so, It is widely believed that there are two types of Christians. There are spiritual Christians and there are carnal Christians. Or as we talked about briefly in Sunday school and we've spoken of in the past, there are those who accept Jesus as their Savior and then those who go beyond and and accept Jesus as their Lord. And for that paradigm, that, that thinking of the church, disciples only pertains to the higher class, to the spiritual class to those who choose not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but to learn of Him. We've actually been asked in this church if that is the type of church we are. I remember one person saying, Oh, you're a teaching church. Well, sadly, that that is a designation in the modern church. There are teaching churches and there are, there are worship churches. There are singing churches and there are praying churches and there are outreach churches. 
Is that how Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, records the church growth in the earliest time? I want to ask a question that might, might strike you as um, blasphemous. Was the focus of Luke's record of the early church worship or was it the word? Now, in the Reformed tradition, the emphasis is on biblical worship. The regulative principle is all geared toward giving to God the worship that He requires. Worship, worshiping God in the manner that He has prescribed and not in the manner that suits man. That is kind of the Reformed tradition. But really, this is just a variation of a theme that has been popular for the past 500 years and very much so in the past 50 years. The word worship is the most frequently used word in the description of any modern church. We have now worship teams and worship leaders and praise and worship bands. We're asked when we enter or go to a church, did you enter into worship or did you experience worship? And we hear from others about the worship of such and such congregation. Worship is important. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so, without diminishing the importance of worship, and this is where I hopefully step back from blasphemy, without in any way saying that worship should be denigrated, is it possible that we're still missing something? And that when we look at the record of the narrative of Luke in Acts, we actually find an emphasis not on worship, but on the Word of God? Is it possible that the modern church, in its emphasis on worship styles and on worship experiences, has abandoned the Word and is not following the original blueprint for church growth? Now, we would expect to read that the church kept on growing. And, and literally, in verse 7, the verb is growing, increasing. We would expect to hear the church kept on growing, or we might say the assembly of believers kept on growing, but that's not what we read. We read the Word of God continually grew. I think that's intentional. It's an interesting image, is it not? You know, we don't think of it literally in the sense that we keep on adding books to the Word of God. Now, there are those in the charismatic movement, that's kind of what they're doing. For them, the Word of God is continually increasing. But that's not what Luke means. That's not what the Holy Spirit means. It means the outpouring, the life, the power of the Word of God continually increased. That is church growth. There really is an emphasis. It's, it's the priority, not the, not the adding of the people, but the growing of the Word of God. John Calvin remarks that the Word of God does grow in two manners, two ways in the church. It grows when the unbeliever is regenerated through the power of the preaching of the Word. It also grows when the believer is sanctified and matured through the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. So there is, and there should be in the church, in every church, a continual growing of the Word of God. It should never stagnate. You should never be in a church where you hear the same thing, the same sermon, over and over again. This was the travesty of the, the acts of uniformity from the Reformation, where every church in the land preached, according to the book of church order, the homily that was scheduled for that Lord's Day. 
so that wherever you were in the country, if you popped into a church, you would hear the same thing that you might have heard had you been home that weekend. Now, that's not the intention of the Holy Spirit in the church. But how much in our own thinking, when we think of church growth, have we been conditioned by the modern marketing paradigm, the books that fill our Christian bookstores, and unfortunately, our pastors' studies about how to grow a church? Marketing methods, programs, and most importantly, music that is all geared and tailored to bringing that particular target group into your building. Nothing about the preaching of the gospel. Nothing about the growth and the increasing of the word of God. So Luke doesn't say, and the church grew, but he says, and the word of God grew. He doesn't say that converts or members or believers were added, but he says disciples were added. He doesn't say they chose Jesus or they made a profession. Now, these are the terms that you hear in, in modern evangelism. Give Jesus a try. That's like, try on these shoes, see how well they fit. You know, and when you hear that, it's like, no, you don't give Jesus a try as if he's one of many possible solutions for the troubles of your life. He doesn't say, and, and many of the priests made a profession. No, he introduces a phrase that Paul is going to pick up. Many of the priests, what, were becoming obedient to the faith. Well, that is completely absent from modern evangelism. That you should obey. You know, that Paul should get up on Mars Hill and say that the God of heaven who created all of mankind is now commanding everyone everywhere to repent. We have lost sight of the fact that the gospel is an imperative. Okay? It's not an offer. It's a command. Repent or you shall likewise perish. The faith is not something that, that comes from within me, nor is it merely a gift from God. Those are basically the Arminian and the Calvinist view of faith. That's not the end of our understanding of faith. Faith itself is a command to believe. That is a command upon every human being. And the gospel is in the imperative. And so Luke intentionally says that even the priests, who up to this point were the primary opponents, and yet you would expect to be the ones to understand, even the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. These terms, the word of God grew, disciples multiplied, becoming obedient to the faith. What would happen to modern evangelism if these terms were reintroduced into our evangelistic preaching. Would there be massive rallies? Would there be thousands of people coming forward during the altar call? Would there be countless people making professions of faith, choosing Jesus? Would there be actually people saved? Have we lowered the bar to the church of Jesus Christ in our day? Now, there would be those who would say, and there would be many who will say, that the bar should be lowered. That the church is open to all and any. There should be no discrimination, no prejudice. And if you're talking about races, 
If you're talking about ethnicities, if you're talking about sex, I would agree. If you're talking about the content of the preaching of the gospel, we cannot agree. We cannot agree that that bar should be lowered. And if we have lowered the bar in the modern church, are all who are able to cross that bar now truly saved? There's a concept we've talked about in the past with regard to the gospel. It's a concept we're all familiar with, and that is inoculation. You know, we're all supposed to get a flu shot. Or the polio, you know, the polio disease was basically eradicated through that vaccine. Jonathan Edwards died because he contracted smallpox because he was participating in the, in the science of vaccination, of inoculation. And the whole idea of inoculation is to give the, the, person, the, the person's body a small dose of the disease, either alive or dead, depending on the disease, and allow that person's immune system to build up strength to fight that disease. That's what an inoculation is. Well, much of modern evangelism inoculates sinners against the gospel. It gives them just enough of it to let their own sinful immune system build up immunities against the real thing. And they themselves are convinced, and they're convinced and confirmed by their pastors. Oh, don't worry. Remember that day in my office that you wrote the date down in the front of your Bible, you know, that you made a decision for Christ. You're fine. Oh, I understand you're, you're unfaithful, you cheat your company, you're immoral, but you're fine. Because you made that, you know. And so that's what the church has done today. How many will rise up against pastors in the day of judgment with the claim, you said I was okay. You comforted me with your preaching. You said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. You gave me just enough of the gospel, just enough of Jesus to make me think I was okay and to make me immune to the truth when I heard it. And how many of those pastors will be truly condemned in their preaching, if not in their soul, for what they have called evangelism, which was in fact nothing more than deception? Are we elitist? Are we ungracious? If we adopt the word disciple as a universal description of members of the church, in other words, if I challenge you that you are not, if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, now, if you don't know what that word means, it simply means a student, a learner. If you are not a learner, if you do not desire to learn the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, then may I say that your profession of faith is at least suspect? Is that elitist? Well, let me tell you, I've been told that it is. I've been told that it's ungracious, that the grace of God does not require us to be disciples, only believers. In other words, that the Holy Spirit can come into your heart and do nothing, and reside there and say nothing, and dwell with you even until the end of the age and teach you nothing. I don't think so. Again, Luke's language is intentional. These were not mere converts. These were not mere professors. These were disciples. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Well, 
If the modern church growth movement has emphasized, or the emphasis of modern church growth has abandoned the centrality of the Word of God, that's kind of one branch of modern Christianity, there's another branch that has emphasized signs and wonders. And, and that's been with the church all during its history. We, we might like to think that Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement are, are modern, but they're not. There were those in the second century, those in the fourth century, those during the Reformation, those during the 19th century, into the 20th century, who believed that the true manifestation of one's faith will be signs and wonders, miracles. And we read here of Peter, I'm sorry, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, it is generally viewed that this grace that was given to Stephen was received by him through the laying of hands by the apostles that we read about in the previous section. We're also going to read of, of Philip being able to do some pretty remarkable things. And so we don't know about the other five, but we can assume that they also... We also don't know about most of the apostles because they're not named. But the apostles were accompanied with miracles. And apparently so were those whom they appointed, at least Stephen and Philip. But are signs and wonders on par with the Word of God? Now, this is kind of a challenge of the other way of thinking. Because you see, as Reformed Christians, we tend to, to gravitate naturally to the intellectual side of our faith. That's kind of, frankly, why we're Reformed. Okay, I mean, I don't know what came first, the, the Calvin or the egg, but, um, you know, basically... People who are going at the Reformed tradition are those who, who like to learn. I'm not saying that people who don't are stupid. I'm just saying that, that people have different bents and, and different attitudes. And, and so we tend to go toward the academic side of the faith, sometimes a bit too far. And we also tend in the Reformed tradition to, to look askance and sometimes even in horror to what we perceive to be uncontrolled manifestations of the Spirit. They're kind of frightening. Okay, so we look down our noses at the charismatic. But I do think it's worth asking the Pentecostal or the charismatic, are signs and wonders on par with the Word of God? In my experience, Angela, in my experience in the charismatic church, in the Pentecostal church, I would say that in practice, the answer is no. Uh, that, in fact, we attended services where the Word of God was never once opened because the Spirit moved. And there were speaking in tongues, and there was singing, and there was prayer, but they never seemed to find time for a sermon. Okay. And so that, that's still with us, this concept that, that signed and wonders are on par with the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit will work through signs and wonders in the same manner or maybe even more powerfully and then he works through the Word of God. Do we lack faith because we don't seek signs? As a church, do we lack faith because we don't speak in tongues? Do we quench the Spirit because we are not seeking after miracles, faith healings, and the like? Again, I have been told that we do. Because okay? that is a view that is prevalent within at least a major part of modern Christianity. But, you know, Jesus had this to say. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And Paul said this to the church of Corinthians in Corinth, 
He said, For indeed, indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks, foolishness. So Paul was faced with the same situation, and he was one in whom the power to, to bring about miracles was granted. And yet he said, no, that's, that's not where it's at. Signs are not evangelistic. I would say signs are not even, what's the word? Sanctifying. Signs are actually judgmental. If, if you read through the scriptures, signs are more often, in fact, almost predominantly used to bring about judgment upon unbelief, rather to bring about actual salvation. Even Jesus, when he was about to be stoned, asked his attackers, for what good work? You know, I've been going around healing and delivering from demons. For what good work? For what miracle do you stone me? They said, oh, for no miracle, but for rather you calling yourself the Son of God. You see, it was not evangelistic. I mean, he fed the 5,000 miraculously. And then we read that many of them departed from him and followed him no more. See, what signs and wonders do is that they intensify the condemnation of unbelief. And if you don't believe me, then when we get to that day, ask Chorazin, ask Bethsaida, ask Capernaum. Because the Lord himself said to those cities, if the miracles that have been worked in your midst had been done in Nineveh, in Tyre and Sidon, in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Okay? You see, signs are not salvific. They are judgmental. Now, I, for one, do not believe that signs and wonders have ceased. I just don't believe that they are intended to be the normal operation of an established gospel ministry. That signs and wonders, even in the scriptures, accompanied revelation, new revelation. The revelation that was brought through Moses. The revelation that was brought through Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. The revelation that was brought through Jesus Christ. But in the intervening periods of the judges, Joshua, judges, in the intervening period of the prophets, and then beyond the apostles, you will find the actual histories will tell you that signs and wonders faded away. Stephen was able to perform signs and wonders. The disciples, including Judas, when they were sent out to the cities of, Jerusalem, of Israel, were able to cast out demons and heal the sick. These men occupied an intermediate office called a legate. In history and theology, we call them the apostolic legates. Or when the disciples were sent out, they were dominical legates. In other words, a legate is one who speaks in the place of another. It comes from the Greek word to speak. A legacy, for example, is that which speaks of a man after he's gone. That's his legacy. And so if I empower someone to speak for me wherever he goes, he is called my legate. Okay? An ambassador is a similar thing. The difference is that the apostolic legates did not continue after the apostles died. The history of the church in the second century is that the manifestation of signs and wonders disappeared. That, that's just what happened. Sadly, the history of all recorded revivals is that they ended. 
That the powerful preaching and the vast numbers of disciples that were being added to the church every day, the changes in the social fabric of the neighborhood came to an end. Because the Spirit has indicated that it is His will to punctuate history in this way, but not that history should be this way throughout. And so as a church, we focus on the word preached and not signs and wonders. If something were to happen, however, that we could not say was a work of the devil, something that accompanied the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of the lost, something that accompanied repentance and faith, would we condemn it? Would we, as many of our brethren would do, call it the work of the devil? Or would we rather remember what Jesus said, that if Satan divides his house against itself, it will fall? You see, God is still capable of doing miraculous things. And when His Spirit, when his spirit unites in power with His Word, especially where that Word has never been heard before, we might expect to see miraculous things happen to the glory of God and to the praise of Jesus Christ. But it was the Word preached that saved and sanctified, and it was the Word preached that confounded and infuriated it's the word preached that is, as Paul says, the fragrance of life unto life to those who are being saved and the stench of death unto death to those who are perishing. Stephen is said here in this passage in verse 10, and they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He had irresistible wisdom. And what he is about to enter into is the first recorded Apology of the church. Now you've probably heard of the, of the theological science called apologetics, which comes from the Latin word apologia. I'm sorry, actually it's also Greek. It doesn't mean to say you're sorry. It means to give a defense. And many of your Bibles at the beginning of chapter 7 of Acts will have the heading Stephen's defense. I would like to change that to Stephen's offense because it was very offensive and he got killed for it. It wasn't really defense at all. It was defense in the sense that he was before a court, but it was very much offense. And I say that because that is the nature of Christian apologetics. It's not just defending the faith. It's putting forth the faith in a hopefully powerful and spirit-filled offense of the church. I, I'm an advocate of apologetics and I do believe that it can be done correctly as well as it can be done incorrectly. Now, the purpose I think that Luke has here as we're looking at this passage is he's actually transitioning, as I mentioned last week, from Peter to Paul. And this, this whole situation, as I said, there's the implied presence of a young man named Saul at the feet of Gamaliel in chapter 5 when Peter and the other apostles have been standing before the Sanhedrin and Gamaliel counsels to leave them alone. Well, there'll be an explicit presence of the same Saul at the end of chapter 7 as he watches over the cloaks of those who stone Stephen. But even the, dispute, the disputants in this argument are in some ways a shift not only from Peter to Paul, but from the Jewish church to the Gentile. We read that uh, in verse 9, some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, literally the libertines, these were Jews who had been captured primarily 
during the campaigns of Pompey the Great in 63 BC. When Pompey conquered Palestine, he took with him many captive Jews. Now, these would not have been, of course, the same people. But they would have been the descendants. And somehow their family would have been able to secure its own freedom. And so from that point in time, their social status within the Roman Empire was that of libertine, a freed slave. That, that was a social status. That was a, a category of people in the Roman Empire. And they were remarkably looked down upon by those Jews who had never been in slavery. Just as Soviet soldiers who, was, who were delivered and freed from German concentration camps at the end of World War II went back to Russia to be condemned as traitors. Many of them were killed. Many of them died in Stalin's gulag. It is something taints our view of those who have once been slaved. But now, maybe because of that, these synagogues rose up or arose that were tailored almost predominantly for those who had once been slaves to the Romans. And, and in those synagogues, perhaps in an attempt to prove themselves faithful, you would find the fiercest defenders of the traditions of Moses. These would be the Pharisees of the Pharisees. Cilicia is mentioned as one of the territories. Well, the capital of Cilicia is a city by the name of Tarsus. Paul never mentions that he himself was a slave. But somehow his family got to Tarsus, which was a Roman city. It was very possible that Paul's father or grandfather was taken as a slave by Pompey the Great. And at some point, because of service rendered to his master, one of Paul's relatives was granted freedom. Paul was born free. Paul was born a Roman in a Roman city. And these things would be used providentially in Paul's ministry. But Paul was also one of the fiercest advocates of the Torah. It was as if these men had something to prove. That they were, even though their heritage involved slavery to the Romans, that they never imbibed any of that pagan influence throughout their generations, but that they were still faithful to Moses and to the temple. Stephen was probably at least a Hellenistic Jew. His name is Greek. And he is the one God uses to debate with these freedmen, with these libertines. And we read that, that they were not able to cope with the wisdom. Now, I think Luke is purposefully including this fact of Stephen to answer to something that he records back in his gospel. In chapter 21 of his gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand how to defend yourself. In other words, that word again is apologia. Make up your mind, Jesus says, not to prepare an apologetics, not to prepare a defense. Now there are those who have been in our church in, in years past, and there are those who believe in the history of the church that it is wrong to prepare a sermon, that we should simply be open to the Holy Spirit 
and preach whatever the Holy Spirit brings to our mind at the moment. Now, if you looked in your bulletin and saw the outline, <laughs> you might think I was going to try that. But what happened is I forgot to type the outline for Josh to actually make it. We do not agree with that. And so we have to deal with what Jesus, what does Jesus mean? And, and how does Jesus, you know, the debate is always, does Jesus agree with Paul? You know, Paul and Jesus. What about Jesus and Peter? Because in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, we read, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Same word, apologia. Make up your mind not to prepare a defense. Always be prepared. Do we have a contradiction? How do we harmonize these two admonitions? Oh, well, definitely we take Luke because it's in red letters. No, that doesn't work. Is it fair to say that even the Holy Spirit won't draw water from an empty well? Now, notice I said won't, not can't. I'm not about to say that God can't do anything. But is it possible that God has ordained that he will not draw water from an empty well? In other words, he will not bring forth wisdom and truth from a mind and a heart that is unprepared? We're about to find out in chapter 7 that Stephen was quite prepared. And he's about to give the Sanhedrin an entire Israel history lesson. Okay? I mean, he was prepared. And maybe we can harmonize these by saying that first, irresistible wisdom, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, comes in preparing the mind and heart through the Word of God. And that is something that each of us can do each day of our lives. But then, the Holy Spirit gives the words at the moment that manifests church, the truth and confounds and convicts unbelievers. So, Perhaps Jesus is saying, don't, don't rehearse your defense the day before your trial. But rather, day by day, fill your mind with the word, the truth. Jesus himself prayed to the Father that he would sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. And with that truth in your mind, in your heart, and your life immersed in the truth of the Word of God, trust to the Holy Spirit to give you the words in the time that you need them. I think that's how it's harmonized. I don't think we simply put our Bible outside and let the wind blow to whatever page, and that's what we read, because wind and spirit are the same words in the Hebrew. That's silly. It's the best you can say about it. It's silly. We're, we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved. We're supposed to search the scriptures to see that these things be so. The admonitions all the way through are that each one of us is responsible to know the truth. And it's that truth that will set us free. But one thing that it will free us from is anxiety. What am I going to say? Because when you know the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, anxiety goes away. And you become, as Stephen will show us, you become untouchable. You know, I, many of you remember the, the story in the movie of the Untouchables, the federal um, treasury agents under Elliot Ness who went after the 
bootleggers, um, Al Capone. Uh, it's a great movie. They were the untouchables. They could, not be, they could not be cowed by threats. They could not be bribed. They could not be threatened. They, they had a job to do, and they did that job. Okay? They were the untouchables. Well, Stephen has a job to do. We all have a job to do in whatever sphere of life. This is very providential. This came about in Stephen's life probably because of his own family's association with the freedmen. These probably were his people that he was debating now. And he was showing them the inadequacies, or at least the obsolescence of the old covenant, now that the new covenant had come. But when they threatened him, when they maligned him, when they brought up false charges of his blasphemy, we read that they looked upon him, and they fixed their gaze on him, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. You see, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of being proven wrong because he was following after the path of his master who was treated in just the same way. As Jesus said, if they hate you, take courage, for they hated me first. If they persecute you, know that they persecuted me first. And, and even Saul, witnessing all of this, will hear that same voice saying, why are you persecuting me? Attacks against us. When we are standing in the truth, when we are standing in integrity, as we read in the opening psalm this morning, if we're standing in integrity, attacks against us are attacks against Jesus. And he is well able to defend himself. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the example of Stephen, the proto-martyr. We thank you for his faithfulness and acknowledge that it was the work of the Holy Spirit within him and not anything of his merit. And so, Father, we are encouraged to ask for that same faith and for that same spirit of courage. We do ask, Father, that you would give us the words in the time of need, whatever circumstance you might graciously place before us, that you would give us the words to speak and the courage to speak those words for your glory and for the salvation of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.